to the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner. Welcome to episode 21 of the Urban Planners Podcast. In today's episode, we will be continuing our final episode of the Black Urbanist Speak Out series, which is part two of the Urbanism Divide conversation with D'Angelo Swekinson and Antoine Bryan. And in today's episode, we delve into education, food deserts, gentrification, and a whole bunch more. Hope you all enjoy. Well, thank you, DeAngelis and Antoine, for joining me again for part two in our conversation about urbanism divide. And hopefully we can actually delve more into the topic. So starting off, one of the most common things that we deal with as Black Americans is gentrification. What are some preventative measures that we can put into place to help decrease the amount of gentrification that's happening in our Black neighborhoods? I'll start. I mean, gentrification is one of the major issues Uh, affecting all of our urban areas across the country. I think one of the things that I've noticed is that many of our communities, there's an impression that gentrification is happening to us. And when you look, it's a situation that's been in all of our major cities. You see it in Houston, you see it in Dallas, you see it in Austin, you see it in Brooklyn, you see it in Detroit, you see it in Oakland, you see it in St. Louis, you see it in Chicago. And you pick the top 20, 25 cities in this country, they're all dealing with gentrification issues almost exclusively in communities of color. What does gentrification mean and its outposts? As purely academic definition, it is the replacing of one population with another, uh, primarily based upon class and by economic status. We have a racial lens here in, in uh, America because typically the communities that are being moved into, moved out of, those populations, the ones moving in tend to be white and tend to be middle class and upper class, and the ones being forced out are almost exclusively black and brown. So then you have to step back a step and say, okay, why are these neighborhoods even attractive in the first place? Well, historically, again, many of our black and brown communities have been near commercial centers, right? And so they were forced to live there in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. When you had the white flight and you had the suburbanization of most white households, Now you have new populations here in the late 90s and early 2000s that no longer have an interest in driving 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 minutes back and forth to work. And so they have now a return to your urban core. And Mr. and Mrs. Middle Class America is like, hey, this thing is walking distance from downtown. Or hey, this neighborhood is right near the commercial district. Or hey, here's a great opportunity for us to live and thrive and not have to sit in our car two hours a day. This is awesome. And there's some intrepid soul will buy some quote unquote ratty house and be the the pioneer in the neighborhood. And then it begins to change. Now, the reason why there's a lot of issues associated with it is that most of our neighborhoods that are being gentrified have been neglected by our governmental systems for the better part of the last 30 years. So you have inadequate resources, you have inadequate infrastructure, you have uh, challenging school systems. However, now that you have new populations coming in that often have greater political power, all of a sudden, now a lot of those services are coming back. And so that's part of the chagrin 
that many residents are addressing, combined with the fact that now they have property taxes that are beginning to rise. And that's one of the primary reasons why people get forced out. As far as methods to be able to mitigate that, one of the biggest ones would be some level of ownership of the land. Some of the biggest challenges is that we have ownership gaps in our communities, meaning not as many of our households own their land, and those that do don't have wheels. And so in every new community that we know, there's a black neighborhood with 40% of the residents, somebody big mama died, her kids is all across the country, they don't wanna pay the taxes, because they don't even like their brother, and then the government assumes that property and sells it at a dollar to someone, and it's appropriated. And so that's part of the reason why we are losing dirt at an astronomical rate. But I can go on and on about the forms. I think that was one of the solutions to me is ownership, and we need to do better at maintaining ownership in our communities. But I'd like to you know, pass it on to my brother D'Angelo's, because I know he got me stuff he wanna talk about, and I don't wanna be greedy. Hey, man, you know, you just hit a home run on this. So I am a natural contrarian to uh, gentrification conversations because I think it hyper-focuses on the outcomes of it. So it focuses on how do we keep people from moving out, but it doesn't focus on like, all right, why are people being forced out? So looking at gentrification just as a problem of one group's moving in, so there's a supply opportunity for a group to move in. So how are those places being becoming vacant so that they can move in? How does that show up? Is it renter turnover? Because we got to have an honest conversation about how many renters don't stay in the same house one year from the next. And so understanding the natural turnover of our community from renters, especially since most of our real urban locations have become renter havens, even the single family housing stock has become renter havens after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And so when you have renters who continually turn over, it allows opportunities for landlords to kind of either pillage in the rent or see a market opportunity and say, hey, there's a nice little grocery store, bodega, or restaurant that popped up. I'm going to raise my rent $300 and I price out fixed income households, which it's an alarming rate of how many of our households are on fixed income either based on bedroom size or based on retirement accounts. And so we talk about just the black population, other demographics, I'm gonna let them speak for themselves because I don't know the information, but on black populations, we have a unique situation in relation to ownership in our communities. We are leasing most of our community that we live in. And when I mean that, I mean the social networks, we lease those spaces and the neighborhoods, we lease those spaces. And places that you have ownership, Gentrification is not the same conversation. There's no vacancy for someone else to come in and swoop up property because we own it, we're occupying the space. And so I like to look at what's going into this problem that's causing it to be amplified. And one of them, to your point, is the ownership gaps. I mean, Twin Cities, and you mentioned Houston last time, you know, the highest home ownership gap in the country, 40% of people of color, 85% of whites. And so we're talking about a 45% difference. But there's something unique about what we do in those places. We are a people of innovation and we gonna make the best out of it. And so what do we do? We put art in our communities that reflect us. We put cultural institutions that really ain't nothing but a raggedy building, but inside kids are learning music and voice and their after school programs. And so we make the best out of it. And then to your point, early adopters, 
find those things attractive. They find the street art or graffiti attractive. They find the murals attractive. These are the kids who grew up in the suburbs. They went to college and they're like, yo, actually I want to live this urban life. And so there's a value that we create in places that we occupy, whether we own it or rent it, that I think we have not owned that value that we created. And I think when you talk about not just the physical property, but the culture that comes with us in neighborhoods, we haven't truly owned it. And I think that's part of the solution, Isla, based on what you were saying, is like the, the key to gentrification, I think, is us owning the value of our creations in the community. In my mind, it doesn't have a tangible physical aspect, but it has that intangible. And so if you look at how many people will naturally move, if you look at the average time white households spend in a home before they sell and re-up into another location, and then you do the same math for like how long does the average black household stay in a home they bought? In the Midwest, there's only so many black neighborhoods. We don't like moving. We ain't trying to upgrade every three years based on our equity and appreciation. So we stay somewhere and we heavily invest in social networks and we don't always own those networks. And so I'm going to step back now, but I'm going to say there's a layer of ownership about our cultural vitality that we create in these places that are considered grungy, urban, off to the side, kind of the margins of society. We create value and culture in those places that other people want. If we can capture the ownership of that value that we create, we prevent others from pimping our situation for their benefit. For instance, here in town, so First Avenue is famous because Prince, and he made it famous in his kind of ascent in the music scene and Morris Day and the time and kind of the rest of the crew. They are in a place in downtown that was considered grungy and ratty, but what they did is they owned their location. And so because of the history and the vibrancy they created in that district, it's hotels. We have our you know basketball arena next door and our baseball arena next door. They're the only single story building in that area. But I think the importance that the ownership would say is the only thing that separated them from not getting kicked out of their own neighborhood is that they own their real estate. It stopped them from being pushed out as a business and there was no landlord to raise the rent on them. And so even in non-black scenarios, economics is going to continue to push the envelope. But ownership allows you to cap or for you to set your price from when you do want to get out. What is it going to be? Awesome. So as you both spoke about ownership, I also thought about the fact that it's also important that we sort of decrease our debt, our mortgages that helps secure us even more. But one of the biggest issues that is out there is the lack of education, the lack of education to own your home and fully understanding the process to actually owning the home. A lot of people think, especially Blacks, that it's a very hard process. And it can be in some instances, but there's a lot of things out there for first-time home buyers and other things. So let's talk about education. And maybe you guys can delve into just the overall education or lack of education of Black people going to get higher education, bachelor's, master's, PhDs, and how all of that you know, ties into the urbanism divide that we have here in America. So let me start this one off. I think if you have gone to college as a Black professional and you have filled out FAFSA, especially as an 18-year-old going into college, you are ready to purchase a home. I think there's a myth that this is overly difficult, overly cumbersome, but yet we were telling our parents how to fill out the federal financial aid 
for college. And it's the same process. You apply, they tell you how much, you verify your income, you're approved, you gotta provide documents to get to the final date where your grant is approved or your home is approved. I oversimplify it. I know for some people, especially when you talk about those who didn't experience college or those who haven't experienced any kind of post-secondary or those who really don't have even a GED, they're still eligible for purchasing a home. It becomes much more difficult for the people in our community who haven't had those rich experiences that force you to go through that kind of application process. And so I think we have to talk about the education of home, but also business and SBA financing and new market tax credits and kind of those things that happen in two buckets. The sophisticated family who may have matriculated through college or had a family history of home ownership or business ownership and knows how to get through SBA, knows how to get a line of credit, et cetera. And then you have a part of our community, which I would say is unsophisticated in the tools that have already been set up so that you could be successful if you just knew how they operated. And so I think that the buyer education in our community is vast between those two groups. It's wonderful because homeownership, I think, is incredibly important and it's something that's a, a gap that we've had. And unfortunately, that gap has gotten wider uh, nationally in the black community and not smaller when we talk about the disparity issue. I do agree that it is an education issue, but to the education, what I would add to that is a financial literacy conversation. Because what we see, we there's a whole bunch of professional brothers and sisters that go to college, get a, even an advanced degree, but can't balance their bills. And so you don't have the ability to own a home um, sometimes because you were never taught, and it does, it does not come in college, necessarily financial intelligence and how best to manage your resources. So now you have a situation where you're making $80,000 a year, and you still have a 500 credit score, right? Because you made some bad decisions at one point or another. And I think sometimes you can have advanced degrees and still not know money. And I think that's an issue. Part of that education gap, I also relate to a cultural thing as well, because I was one of those households, and I know a whole lot of them, where your parents didn't talk about money, right? You either had enough or you didn't. How many of us, you talked about the FAFSA, and we filled it out for our parents, right? And then there's that part that asks about your household income, and you're asking your mom and dad how much they make. Give me that boy, I'll fill it in. Don't worry about it. Like, I mean, I didn't know what my dad made for years. Like, for, I was all the way grown before I found out my dad's salary. Like, I mean, married and had a kid or two. And that's something that's not talked about. But even in high school, I talked to some of my white friends, and they sat down on the dinner table and talked about the bills, talk about resources, talk about investments. And so there's a leg up in the education and the discussion of finances. You know, we, a lot of our households don't talk about money. Either you got enough or you don't. That costs too much, you ain't getting that. Or we got enough to get the food on the table and pay the bills. That was the extent of our financial intelligence conversation. And I think to the detriment of generations later who do have the resources, but then don't know how to use their money well. Another one that I talk about is access. It's still a real thing. Redlining still happens, right? It really does still happen. It's not something that was relegated to the 50s and 60s. A good friend of mine just got his PhD just Friday uh, out of Drexel. And part of the discussion was the ability or inability of black households to acquire mortgages in the Mantois neighborhood. And so he did an exhaustive study that detailed how black household A 
and, and white household B could have the same resources, same education level, even the same credit score, and the black household, which even has a legacy in a neighborhood, could not get a mortgage. And that's something that's been replicated across this country, even in 2020, where you have black households not able to get the mortgage to buy a home in a neighborhood where everything else, they meet the, the criteria. And so now you have a home that may have the education, may have the resources, but are still being shut out. And so that's a, a very real situation that we have to mitigate. So I look at the home ownership gap being down to financial literacy, to access, and to cultural problems we got to get past. Right now, my son is 12, and we're trying to teach him about financing. He ain't got no money, but at least he'll understand it moving forward. And I think that's a part of it that we can all own in and of ourselves. I would 100% agree that the money conversation, I mean, I grew up single parent household. I was the only child. So it's easier to have that conversation because there ain't that many people for it to go through. But I didn't have that until it was fast for time. Like, yo, I ain't got no money for no college. Like, how you going to pay for it? You better get a scholarship. Well, how much do you make? Oh, we only make that much? Which looking in hindsight is like, yo, parents knew how to make a dollar out of 15 cents. You know, grandparents knew how to do that. So just to clarify, if you have done the application for FAFSA, you are prepared to do the application work for the mortgage. You may not be prepared in other areas, to your point about financial literacy and a home buyer education program here in town, using the analogy got it going on, Steve where you got the nice little $80,000 income, but you didn't do the after-tax calculation and you didn't do how much your rent and your car and your brand new Ford Explorer cost. You ain't really do it on a monthly basis. And there's a lot that goes into it, but there's a culture around money. You alluded to it last time around the ability for families to borrow from 401ks or from their personal savings to gift first-time home buyers or their children with dollars to buy their first home. I mean, some people buy their kids the first home outright. Absolutely. As, hey, I want to give their family a head, heads up or a head start. And not everyone does that, but the example is more abundant in other cultural communities and outside of our own. And so I think it has to do with kind of our money mindset. I mean, you talk about how people talk about money. There's few and far between black families that really dive into the nuance of money because i mean we have to be honest we don't have a good history with money and even when we do have good histories those are exceptional few they're not the, the masses and so we have to be first second third generation torchbearers of financial literacy in our own families and don't go to college for 150 grand of student loans and you're going to come out and be an english teacher like we got to have some conversations around income outside of school versus the debt to acquire that education. I just had to jump in on there, the education part. I think it's incredibly important as far as the education of, of money and knowing how it can work for you and, and those kinds of gaps. For many of us, we're the first generation. We're the first generation to learn about this kind of stuff. And so you're trying to pass along these messages of how even the conversation of diverse streams of income was something that many of us learned as adults. My parents grew up, you get you a job, and if you got some mobile, you get you a second job. Like that was diverse streams of income. And so the idea of the quote unquote, your money working for you was something that was totally foreign. I had no idea what that even meant until after I got out of college. And I think that we have the ability now to pass that on to our kids. But I think a lot of it is honest because many of our parents and our uncles and our grandparents, 
They didn't have access to financial instruments. They didn't have a diverse uh, stock portfolio. And many of them, the banks took their money, right? There are records of our households, our families putting money into banks and the banks literally stealing their resources, which led to us all having aunts and uncles and grandparents that quote unquote still keep their money in their mattresses because they could keep their eyes on their money. I have relatives that still do that. Like we all could probably name some relatives. I don't trust banks. And they have a very legitimate reason to do so. And so I think that's why there are some real intelligence gaps, but there are also some very cultural reasons why we've had um, been very protective of the resources that we've had. Yeah, and protective of why we don't trust hospitals and the health industry. See, there you go. I mean, that's part of the urban divide is that there is a deep-seated distrust of institutions in our community, whether it's government, healthcare sector, small neighborhood nonprofits, banks, the grocery store around the corner. Like we have some antitrust issues, not from a corporate standpoint, but we don't trust because people have historically preyed on us as a group of people and taken advantage of us, to your point that you mentioned. And so that's why you do see a subprime mortgage lending crisis in the 2008 financial markets because people said, oh, well, look, they don't get it. They think they just have to get a house. They don't know that they qualify for better. And so, I mean, that kind of predatory behavior against us as people have caused folks to even say like, look, I ain't buying a house. I'm leaving that alone. Although financial literacy would have educated them. So this is the scale and capacity at which we need to learn is so great that it's hard for us to really understand that a hundred families going through home buyer programs every fall ain't going to cut it. I mean, there's 40 million of us. Like we need system level education built into our everyday life in order for us to bend this curve. We can't get it by the neighborhood group that only can do a hundred a year. We need something a little more at scale, which means that we need to force these kind of curriculum items into our K-12 system as an outcome. Like th these are some things that you just have to get, as part of the status quo. Thank you guys for that conversation. As we talked about financial literacy, I would say that I'm thankful to my parents for what they taught and instilled in me and my siblings. One of their big things was to stay out of debt as much as possible. And I'm the eldest of nine. So there was a lot of us in the house, both parents, and my dad was the only person working. My mom was homeschooling us. So they had the conversation about how are they going to you know, put us in school. And my mom was like, if we had to take out a loan, she's like, you guys aren't even going to go. So we had to figure out trust in God and see how it works. And we were able to finish at least the three oldest, because the other ones are still in college, but the three oldest have finished bachelor's and master's, no debt at all. But my mom was extremely adamant about us not getting into debt, you know, not being a slave to somebody. So I think financial literacy is extremely, extremely important. Go ahead and drop that round of applause in there to get out of the bachelor's and master's without any debt. I mean, I take my hat off. That's awesome. Okay, so as we talk about access, because that's one of the biggest things as it relates to this urbanism divide, let's talk about access to healthy food and food deserts that we have in our Black communities. What are some ways that we can ensure that we have better access to healthy foods and help decrease diabetes and high blood pressure, which is common in African-American communities? So the food desert issue is a major issue and unfortunately is kind of part and parcel with a systematic racism issue because we have not had 
food supermarkets and those kinds of things in many of our neighborhoods. And most of us had to get by with the uh, ever-present bodega, corner store, little neighborhood grocery deal that doesn't always have the freshest fruits and vegetables. They sometimes can have day-old produce. And that's been one of the bigger challenges. And additionally, we're also overrun with fast food. It's very seldom that you'll see what's called fast casual or sit-down restaurants, but you'll see Mickey D's, churches, Popeye's, uh, whatever your local chicken place is in your neighborhood. You know, they're big in Texas with this place called We Fry, You Fry, or something like that. You just bring in your own stuff, they'll fry it for you. You know, that's something that you see very, very often. But what we're starting to see a lot of here locally, there's been a couple of food co-ops started in our black neighborhoods where they're run by residents and people come in and they get to sell to each other. We've got two urban gardens right in the middle of the neighborhoods, which serve two purposes. We are able to repurpose a, a previously, you know, blighted lot, but also you turn that lot into a, a revenue producing and natural food producing opportunity. And usually they are open on, on Saturdays and they're, they run out of stuff because people love the opportunity to get fresh kale and, and fresh spinach and turnips and all of that kind of stuff. So I think the opportunity to repurpose land, especially that's within our community, is a great option. Now, the other challenge as far as to grocery opportunity, there's a conference that happens annually, typically in Vegas, called ICDC. It's International Conference of, oh, ICSC, International Conference of Shopping Centers. And if you've ever been, it is literally every commercial vendor in the country is there. Starbucks is there, Fuddruckles is there, Bars and Nobles, yada, yada, yada. Part of the challenge is that many of these entities, they want to see rooftops and dollars. So when they see a community that has a number of people, but those residents all either A, only have an educational level of, you know, high school diploma or less, they automatically discount it based primarily upon the idea that their revenue potential is limited. Now we've had, we've gone against it. The primary reason I went to the conference at one time was to show alternate data that showed the spending capacity in these neighborhoods. People got to eat, people go buy food. So that's something where it's, it's beginning to turn the value of that outmoded data that uh, skews against a lot of communities of color or communities that don't have the same economic uh, potential. So, it's an ingrained bias that they are just starting to at least hear about, but it's going to be an uphill battle, at least from the supermarket standpoint, to address it. And that's why I try to espouse the opportunity of owning our own food opportunities and making that available to our residents. Hey, I appreciate that, Ali, you, my brother, because as part of the educational process, you know, so, and I mentioned before, we work with small businesses and small kind of neighborhood groups. And so having worked with small food-based businesses, whether restaurant, small grocer, or aspiring kind of juice bar, smoothie kind of operator, there's a couple of things. One, we need to be in the ownership position. So there's a book called Know Your Price by Dr. Andre Perry that I, I recommend for everyone to get into. And it, it kind of goes into how our communities have been devalued by the macro economy in a number of ways, whether through appraisals or through business valuations, 
However, what was equal is that we rate equally, if not better, on platforms that are democratic like Yelp or Google reviews. So our businesses and our enterprises have extreme value to the general populace, including our community. Our businesses don't suck more. Our businesses don't have poor quality. We are equal, if not better, than the majority population when we look at a kind of quantitative assessment of all those resources. And so the Brookings Institute has that study, something that you can really dive into. And the reason why it's important is that we can't be afraid to open our own locations for the very fact that Antoine mentioned is that people love these options in our community. We have the buying capacity. We may not have the income reflective of a suburb or a rich corridor, but we spend a greater proportion of our income on these resources. So we have, not equal, but we have pretty strong buying power for one brand name, two brand names, three brand names. We're not going to be like kind of the suburban regional mega mall systems, but we can support uh, local organized businesses that have quality. What we can't do is try to be like everyone else. We have to culturally not try to reflect everyone else in our operations. And that means that we can't have 40,000 square foot grocers in the middle of a neighborhood trying to support that kind of overhead. We need to be having very niche. And so if you look at the food supermarket world, the perimeter is where most of the profits are made. The interior is where most of the time is spent because you got to get your meat, cheese, produce, and your dairy. Everything in the middle of the store supports those as complete meals, and that's typically the grain structure. I mean, if you look at black households and you look at our diets and you talk about diabetes and blood pressure and other kind of food-related ailments that happen to our body over time, if we focus in our community on the perimeter, the meat, the produce, the veggies, and the dairy, we can eliminate a lot of these things by getting rid of the processed foods that really are hurting us, the pop the sugary juices, the processed grains, uh, et cetera. We don't need that middle part to drive a healthy, balanced meal. If you look at our cultural diet preferences prior to some of the FDA changes around the proportion of grains that need to be on our plate, mac and cheese is new to us. I mean, it's a staple in our community now, but mac and cheese and spaghetti are new to us. I mean, cabbage and greens were like the thing, the major portion of our plate. And so Historically, we have an appetite for healthy produce. We have an appetite for legumes and pinto beans, black-eyed peas, lima beans. We can get back to that, but to the point is access and accessibility are two nuggets of the food desert. And so Antoine hit on kind of the systemic, us trying to, to appeal to the macro system and say, hey, there's value. You can have an Aldi's here. You can have a Trader Joe's in this neighborhood. We can support that. But then I'm going to say, for us, we don't need a big space. I mean, a, a thousand square foot place that only sells those goods is a lot. It can service a lot of people. And through the education of business literacy, most of those people who give you the food send it to you before you have to actually pay. And so there's a positive float where you can receive goods prior to the 21 days that you need to pay for those goods. And you could potentially sell ahead of that invoice to actually have a positive float in your business. That goes down a rabbit hole, but I just want to encourage folks that I see it right now in my day-to-day. I see it right now in my clients, and it is extremely possible, and we don't have to be like Whole Foods. We can be something else. 
and really just worry about servicing our needs. So you touched on a little bit D'Angelo's ownership. And I think that's one of the keys for us to sort of get out of what we're in as Black Americans is having ownership in a lot of different aspects. And you spoke a little bit about having our own grocery stores, which we lack. There are not many Black grocery stores and other Black-owned businesses. So let's talk about the importance of ownership, starting our own businesses, cultivating that so that we can no longer be slaves to this American society, basically. Well, first of all, that question got really interesting towards the end. Yeah, yeah, I'd be tired of being slaves to the Americans. That got interesting. So I am a fan of ownership. I root for it, knowing that it's not for the majority of the Black population. It's a mindset difference. It's a cultural difference. It's a risk-reward difference. And LLC community, I love y'all, but everybody ain't cut out for that lifestyle. Everybody's not cut out for the variations in income especially folks who are coming as like that first generation out of poverty, they want stability. And so for a lot of us, we can't make that jump and we aren't going to make that jump. But for those of us who do, I think we have to be reminded of the civil rights movement. We have to be reminded of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Greenwood. There were not a lot of people who made stuff happen for everybody. You just simply need to be community minded. And so a small group, I mean, I, I use this all the time, is that it took 13 brothers in Jerusalem to turn the world upside down. I mean, we don't need a lot of people to really get together to change the community. We need two or three who have means, who have education, to make a decision and just do it, but be community-centric. And I think that's where the divide to another topic is Black capitalism. Is it different? any different than white capitalism or do we need a different economic structure because i think if you are just going to do exactly what everyone else does but you're going to have a black face on it you are not benefiting our community because you're going to be extractors and so we call that just pure extraction where i create value here and i'm going to extract it and take it back with me to wherever i'm at versus true investment where it's like no the people everyone who's a part of this ecosystem that's creating value also receives value. That means employee wages. That means you spend money where you live and where you work and with people who reinforce that kind of cultural sensitive, you know, business climate. And so I think there's a lot of nuance and ownership, I think, is a large solver of that because it creates generative principles in people is what value can I bring? You start to look at yourself differently. You start to think about the different value points others bring to the table because you know you can't solve it all yourself. And so I think ownership as a mindset and entrepreneurship as a mindset has a lot of practices. You could be an entrepreneur, folks inside companies who are entrepreneurial or are creating, but like I said last time, you gotta secure the bag. We have to be secure in the bag, even if it's just a few of us who are community-minded enough to reinvest that money back with us. I agree with everything my brother D'Angelo said. The only things I would add is I think entrepreneurship and ownership is going to be incredibly important for our community. I agree wholeheartedly that not everybody can be an entrepreneur. A, because for some of the safety and security reasons that D'Angelo cited, but also most of the time black households get one shot. I can't tell you how many times my wife is an entrepreneur, a very successful one actually. 
and it's been to innumerable conferences and the leaders are always, I'm a serial entrepreneur and this is my sixth business and my first five failed and we don't get no shots. That's part of the reason why Mr. and Mrs. Jackson or Mr. and Mrs. Washington or whatever, they, you know, they spend 15 years on a business plan. Sometimes they spend way too much time in analysis because they have to get this shot right. If they somehow get the resources to get it started and they get a business going and then it's going. But if it fails, oh, it's curtains. You ain't getting no more loan money. You ain't getting no more the money you connected from all your kinfolk in them. They're not coming back. And so part of the challenge that we have is that our entrepreneurs don't have the opportunity to have the failure rate that is typically endemic to entrepreneurship in and of itself. When you study entrepreneurship, you realize most businesses do fail, right? But we don't have the opportunity to, to rebound and come back the same capacity. And I think that's a real issue. Then you talk to a black entrepreneur across this country, they will tell you the trials they had to do just to get financing. Just to get started, there were hurdles in place for them to be able to get the resources to actually build their business in the first place. You can have a great idea. You can have done all the marketing analysis that you want, but you need $400,000 to start your business. And you could have sound credit score. And these banks still will have you in a much harder way to go than your average white business person. And so that's a real issue too. If we look at entrepreneurship as the largest employer of blacks, many of them are from small businesses or involved in small businesses. One of the values of small entrepreneurship is that you're able to employ other people. And so if you are a quote unquote black businessman or black businesswoman, a lot of times we're very intentional to try to employ our own residents. And so that's why it's always good to try to support them as much as possible, because that businesswoman might be taking care of 50 other households, right? Because that's typically what we do. Now, the next challenge, though, is that, again, the access issue. If you have a very successful black business, male, female, what have you, uh, they want to scale. Usually they run into the same roadblocks they had just to get open in the first place. They're not as easy to scale up, to go from one to three or three to five as their peers and the majority. And so that's a, a hindrance that they have to address as well. And then lastly, one thing that I think as far as just resources and as far as business ownership, I really would like to see us employ and use more of our banks and our credit unions. We do have black banks in this country that lend to black businesses. And we do have credit unions that overwhelmingly are much more responsive to our communities than the Chase, the, the, the B of A, the Wells Fargo. I'll call them all out, right? Because I can't tell you how many friends of mine who are black businesses who have stellar credit, that have A1 resources, that have all their ducks in a row and can't get a business loan. Or if they get one, it's not nearly what their same friend who got the same kind of business but happens to be named Chad can go get. And that's a real issue that the banking industry has to own. Once we get past that, then I think we could really have some more say in how our communities thrive. I, I think there's a, a point there that is part of the, the business education is that banking, just like planning, is not black and white. It's an extremely great industry. And your business banker needs to be your friend. You need to be able to go to lunch talk about your endeavors, talk about your business. And if they aren't, if you're going through the front door, your chances of denial are like 78% plus. 
but your chances of with an established business relationship. And this is one of the things that we have operating businesses in our community that don't have a banker. Because when I work with them, I said, all right, who's your banker? Well, I bank with X, Y, Z. No, no, who's your banker? What's their name? I just signed up for an account, but I really don't have anyone. It's like, well, even if you don't need them, you need to be building relationships, sending them a monthly newsletter, something that they can stay in touch with your business because they are the first line of defense for the bank in their conservative underwriting. But if that person knows you, they trust your expertise, they see your business operations, and then the financials are strong, they are going to say yes, and then they're going to come back. They're going to go to battle for you on the underwriting committee because they're like, look, I work with Jim's Vodka. This is just like Jim's Vodka because black people are trying to open up distilleries legally now because moonshine is kind of taboo. But the reality is like, yo, we have those strong relationships in community. We have to then take those strong relationships to the bank and build them. Now, Minnesota is one of those places that don't have a black credit union or a black bank. We've been trying to get some of the black institutions in Chicago to show up here. And we're in the process here with Village Cooperative Financial Trust, the nonprofit credit union that's working on being established here in the Twin Cities. But we have CDFIs, community development financial institutions around the country that have national reach that we aren't really plugged in with. As a real estate person, I know them because I go to them for capital. But on the business side, I'm sure Houston has several of them around town that have some level of capital. See, that's the challenge there. We have a black bank here. We have a number of credit unions. And I agree entirely with your point about the relationship building part of it. That is absolutely key to the growth and sustenance of your organization. But even with that, I know black businesses that still are having a hard road to go to get some of the resources they need. And so that's why oftentimes when those same entities deal with some of the smaller regional banks or with some of the credit unions, they have a much more linear process. And I've noticed the challenges almost exclusively with our larger institutions, all the national name brands that we see commercials for and all those kinds of things. And what's even more ironic and unfortunate is that they'll trot out their three black vice presidents and say, look, we've got Joe Jackson, he's vice president of London and all that kind of stuff. But none of that connotes to an increase in access for our small business people. We're trying to address our CRA and, and okay, very nice. If Joe's barbecue still can't get the $50,000 credit line and all his ducks in a row, then what are we really talking about? But uh, no, I agree with you. I think relationships is key. And so once we're able to really establish and maintain those relationships and their both ways, then we can really begin to uh, see some progress in our community. Thanks for that. And for reminding me that I need to switch my bank. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so as we wind down, and this question could probably go on for an hour, but if you guys could keep it short and sweet, that'd be great. Do either of you have any last points of advice for non-Black plans and architects and how they can help to quell the injustices and close the gap for this urbanism divide. What can they do? So the local business journal, and I did an interview talking about what are some ways that the uh, business community can lean in. And so this is, that's where I'm going to focus because I think the business community could solve a lot of these issues overnight without asking anybody. And so number one is hire 
yes, we're interviewing a lot of people of color, but we're just not hiring them in this process. And then when you do hire them, number two, you aren't creating a culture that is receptive to diverse personalities and diverse backgrounds. And so you can't retain the talent. So you need to work on your workplace culture as well as your human resources to attract uh, diverse, particularly black talent. Number two is your procurement. It's hard for me to wrap my head around how much money goes to support just mediocre lifestyles and businesses for people in different parts where we have a bunch of acronyms in the suburbs where I don't know what business they are, but it's ABC Supply Company and ORG Net Services. And these are $20, $30 million companies in the metro. Their big relationships are with uh, Fortune 500s as a supplier. And so businesses, small, nonprofits, small, big and large, can focus on their procurement as a source of creating change in the community. That means contracting with diverse planning organizations, contracting with diverse engineering organizations. And then even the toilet paper, we like to say, oh, the janitorials, they're black. It's like, well, damn, there's more in your budget than janitorial services. And we have more businesses than janitorial. And secondly is partner. You can't do anything if you want to get at some real scales. You need to partner, which means bring your resources and yield your power in that relationship so that diverse persons, especially African-American, can lead that process, particularly in planning. Every city staffer is not well equipped to do engagement. So go ahead and partner and bring on another firm to do that process. So that goes back to procurement, but yield your process to them and allow them to drive the ship to get the better results that you're looking for. And that's even in development. Developers of color are 80 year head starts on a lot of the development. The big family ones are 100 year old firms. We need to have those firms partner with diverse firms in delivering projects and services to the community. One, because our neighborhoods are requiring it, but two, it's the right thing to do as you look at the changing demographics across the country. And last thing is hold your friends, family, and loved ones accountable for hatred and bigotry. I'm going to expound on a couple of your points because I had the same ones, and then I'll add the last one for myself. I think as far as addressing workplace culture and, and retention of Black people and people of color to your businesses, not only do we need to interview more and hire more, but then once you've hired some, then you need to make a very clear path to leadership. I can't tell you how many brothers and sisters who are in their mid-50s and they've trained their director, who's now 30, but they've been a project manager or whatever for 25 years, never got an opportunity for leadership, and then someone that's been out of school six years becomes their director or their boss. So you need to not only hire uh, people of color, but also make a very clear pathway for them to assume some level of leadership. As far as your procurement point, again, I agree with you entirely. There needs to be some, an increased level of equity in the uh, procurement of resources, both at the governmental and the private sector. And including that, I cannot tell you, at least in construction and design, how many quote unquote MBEs are someone's wife or someone's daughter is the leader of an organization and it's still a white firm. Like that happens almost all the time and it's shameless and especially here in the South. I can't speak all over the country, but you see a lot of it. And so I think we need to be very honest and have a very open and transparent about allowing for true MBE placement and procurement for services and for uh, projects. And then 
But lastly, I, I am going to put my planning and my development hat on. When we look at how our communities are developed, we have to be much more intentional to address some of the systematic issues that have addressed and formed the way our cities are being built. We need to intentionally rebut zoning that's allowed for uh, environmental racism to occur. We have to rebut uh, zoning that's allowed for different kinds of uses to be near our single family housing uh, and our multifamily housing. We have to look at the adjacency of uh, derelict uses in our residential areas. Why are there only a bunch of quote unquote liquor stores and pawn shops in the black and brown neighborhoods, right? That's all done mostly by zoning. And if a city that's without zoning, it's really allowed to uh, prosper in only these kind of neighborhoods. And so there has to be a real discussion and legislation if necessary to mitigate and in some places eliminate those uses. And so those are things that uh, a lot of our peers and our colleagues, if they really are serious about equity and justice, could start to begin to put their energy toward. And I will echo exactly D'Angelo's last point. Talk to your mom and them, talk to your friends. And if they're saying really bad stuff at the family reunion, you need to check them right there and not let it slide. Thank you both for that. And thank you for joining me for these two parts for my Black Urban Speak Out series, the final um, episode. So as we close, can you please provide your social media platform so that people can connect with you, your websites and all that good stuff? So I'm growing my social media presence. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Antoine Bryant, A-N-T-O-I-N-E, last name like COVID, Kobe Bryant. That's what makes it very simple. You can find me at the City of Houston's Planning Commission. So I've been there now for a little over a decade. And I'm very proud to be with Moody Nolan Architects, largest Black-owned architecture firm in the country. Uh, so I can be there. And I'm on Facebook, too, well under my name. So it's, it's very easy to find. And this has been a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I am the opposite of the spectrum. My name on social media is hard to find because my last name is hard to spell. But D'Angelos Svenkerson, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and all those places. LinkedIn is going to be the easiest to find me because I'm the only one that has this name in the world. So you ain't going to find no other D'Angelo Svenkersons. But yeah, Mr. Svenkerson on Twitter and Instagram as the handle. So happy to connect with anyone. Thank you too, once again. I'm glad to, in this platform, network with more people and connect more people um, together. So have a good night and talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanner.com and select the interview tab and you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode. That's all for today, folks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at ggtheplanner. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.